Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. If you're having a long weekend, hope you're having a good one. If you're working, hope that's going well. Also, we are going to continue the conversation. Uh, you heard it on the Mike Smith Show on Mornings with Simi. Comments made during an online virtual type roast of Ralph Sultan. We'll talk about that coming up in just a moment. Coming up on the program as well, though, we're also going to talk about what is happening with the two Michaels. Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig being detained in China. They were granted some virtual consular uh, assistance, some uh, some uh, speak uh, conversation with consular officials. And we're going to talk about that. What does that mean for the case? As we know, the case of Meng Wanzhou continuing to go through the courts in this province. So we are going to check in with an immigration lawyer coming up on the program. Also going to get your take on an RCMP directive. It is telling officers not to wear the thin blue line patch. It's possible you've never heard of the thin blue line patch, but we're going to explain and talk about that a bit more coming up on the program. Right now, though, I am joined by Esma. Mahan Razavi, former BC director for the group Equal Voice. Esmahan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Uh, I want to play a couple pieces of audio here just to, to make sure everybody's up to speed on what is happening with this. Earlier today, we heard from NDP candidate Bowen Ma responding to what uh, I think many of us have heard. I'm going to play a couple of clips from that as well. Responding to uh, some very sexist language in that online roast. And here it was just part of Bowen Ma responding to reporter questions this morning. I can tell you with confidence that casual sexism is not considered a normal thing in the BCNDP caucus. And I can honestly say that I have not experienced casual sexism from any member of my uh, caucus members under the leadership of John Horgan. However, I do experience casual sexism as a politician, as a woman politician, and as a woman who has worked in male-dominated industries my entire life. And, of course, now I've certainly experienced casual sexism at the hands of the BC Liberals. Now, the casual sexism she is referring to is the comments that were made by Liberal candidate Jane Thornthwaite during a virtual roast of retiring Rolf Sultan. Just listening to a couple of things that Jane Thornthwaite said, uh, she was talking about Bowen Ma in relation to how she is, according to Jane Thornthwaite, around Ralph Sultan. Except for Bowen is, you know, very pretty lady and uh, she knows that she's got it. And um, she knows how to get Ralph going. And my, this is my roast part for Ralph. So that's a laughter you can hear from some of the other guests on that roast, one being Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. And she continued on with the roast and made reference to a luncheon that was held at Capilano University. We were supposed to be... Yes, Ralph, you remember that. We were supposed to be networking and all this, but Bowen knows no. how to get you. She knows how to get you. And no. she stood, there's these big couches, but Ralph would be sitting on one, say the middle of the couch, and Bowen would be right up, right next to him, cuddling, 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 there, and, and Ralph would be enthralled with her. And so I would tell people this story. All right, let's uh, go back to Esmahan Razavi. How do you respond and react when you hear that? Um, I mean, it's 
just feel so disappointed hearing both the comments and then the um, lack of interjection or call out by anyone who was on the call. I think as women, we all kind of dread that no matter how hard we work, um, no matter our accomplishments, we will be reduced to, um, you know, our looks or our sexuality. Um, and to know that this happens in politics, I think it's it's jarring for people. Um, and I think it's um, it's just, you know, it's just so disappointing. And when we talk about, and Bowen Ma used the, the, the term casual sexism. Uh, she said it quite a few times during that uh, news conference that she held earlier today. Uh, you, your group, Equal Voice, is about getting more women in politics and getting women excited about being in politics and having their voice heard. Uh, how much does this, this set that back or make it more difficult? Um, it definitely has a bit of a chilling effect, I would say on the work that we try to do to get more women involved in politics. Um, I think politics is traditionally seen as sort of an old boys club anyway. And when you're trying to espouse a type of politics that is different, that um, is inclusive of women and people of color and people of different backgrounds, um, this kind of idea that this behavior is still ongoing. And I think that um, not just that the behavior is ongoing, but that people look away and don't call it out when it happens um, is not what we need to be showing people if we want to get them involved. Uh, Bowen Ma said uh, as well this morning that uh, she thinks uh, that there needs to be, well, we haven't heard from Andrew Wilkinson yet. We have heard from him on social media. Uh, he's not made himself available and he hasn't spoken publicly uh, about this. Uh, but she did call for leadership saying that while he was on that call, he wasn't the only one laughing at, uh, at what Jane Thornthwaite was saying. How much of this does come down to leadership and the leader of a party making it known that this type of behavior is not acceptable? Well, what I hope is that this is a teachable moment for everyone in politics and that they realize that they need to be, um, you know, if you're a leader of a party, you need to set a certain tone. And if you are a member of a party, you need to hold your party to account and, and ensure that in these types of interactions that these types of comments are made, you're calling it out. So I think it's something that we need to ask of our leaders and, and definitely demand. Yeah. And this made me think of, it was a few years ago, it, it was in the legislature in BC, Christy Clark was called out for apparently, uh, according to one uh, older male politician, she was called out for, in his view, showing too much cleavage in the legislature. Uh, it got a ton of, of response, uh, for A, for his comments, and B, for the fact they simply weren't true. Uh, have we have we made progress, do you think, or has progress been made as far as women not constantly being called? out or sexualized? I think we are slowly making progress. That's maybe the optimist in me. Um, but I think that it's still happening for sure. And I think that, um, you know, the way that we get past this is when we start seeing sexism, racism, all these types of things as nonpartisan issues and call it out within our own parties, within our own circles and really demand better. Because I think like, if we don't do that, if we don't constantly call it out and step up then it's just going to keep happening um and it's it's so unfortunate that you know um premier clark had to have these comments that bowen has to have these comments and, and i hope you know hopefully in two years we don't have to hear these same types of things said but it kind of feels inevitable sometimes is it worse when it's a woman doing it i think as a woman when i hear another woman doing it um it definitely makes me sadder because um you would hope that you know, 
all as women, we face the struggles of trying to be taken seriously, um, of having to work twice, two times, three times as hard at something. And so you would hope that other women would have your back. Um, and when you see that that's not quite the case, um, it's, uh, for me, it's definitely more disappointing. Uh, this uh, happened uh, September 17th, I think, was the actual roast that took place. Uh, the Premier was asked about it earlier today as well at his uh, news uh, event. Uh, he brought up something as well that happened at the legislature in BC uh, not that long ago, and it was about dress code. And women uh, were being told that they couldn't wear anything sleeveless. Uh, one female staffer at the legislature uh, was apparently told that her skirt was too tight, that it was clinging against her pantyhose and that that wasn't appropriate attire at the B.C. legislature. Uh, They rallied together and and fought back against this. Uh, But when women hear those types of stories, and we're talking about 2018, I think, at the latest, that wasn't farther ago than that. Uh, Does it deter women, do you think, from going into politics? I think it does, um, for sure. But I also think that, unfortunately, it's the reality of most industries that are traditionally uh, male-dominated. I mean, I know... Um, you know, I've heard from friends who are journalists, for example, that this happens. Um, I've heard from friends who are doctors or engineers. It's something that is almost like a professional hazard if you're a woman. Um, it's just that in politics, it's a more public industry, and so we see it more. Um, and I do think that it it does make people wonder if they're women and they're thinking about putting their name on a ballot, whether they really want to have to face this type of thing on such a public level um and a lot of a lot of women will decide no they don't want to and that's so unfortunate because then we should think about how much talent we're losing because of a sexist environment that people don't want to be a part of all right uh, Esmahan, we'll leave it there for today thanks so much uh, for being available and for joining us thanks and again happy thanksgiving take care Well, we have been following along with what is happening with the so-called two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and news that they did have virtual access to consular officials. What does this mean and what does it mean now with China denying that they have been arbitrarily detained in response to the arrest of Meng Wanzhou? Well, Richard Kurland is joining us on the line, immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure, Jill. I wanted to start with the uh, having access to uh, consular officials. Uh, How important is that? It's critical to uh, the well-being of the person concerned psychologically. Uh, As well, it can uh, provide cues to our Canadian government officials who can literally almost eyeball uh, the person's uh, health in a face-to-face meeting. Online, it works. It's better than nothing. Uh, but uh, it's rather disappointing that uh, the uh, Chinese government did use COVID as an excuse to bar uh, access uh, between uh, the Michaels and our uh, Canadian officials, especially when they know how to use the Internet so well. <laughs> so these, these, There's no excuse, practically speaking, for uh, uh, this course of action on the part of China. Uh, what about uh, China denying that they are being held in response to the arrest of Meng Wanzhou? Well, uh, truth is not a factor in a Chinese government diplomatic statement uh, in this particular case. So uh, that is their position. Uh, it uh, collides dramatically uh, with the facts on the ground. Uh, if uh, these two individuals were on radar, uh, for doing what they were alleged to have been doing, explain how 
short in time. Those arrests occurred uh, in retaliation to uh, Ms. Mung's extradition hearing. It just doesn't make sense. It's pre-medieval policy to engage in uh, hostage-taking like this, and uh, hopefully in future uh, China will uh, think uh, carefully before engaging in this practice again. What China probably didn't think of is that uh, Canada has managed to invigorate uh, other Western states to form a common wall against this kind of practice on the part of uh, China. So rather than punishing Canada, the outcome has been uh, a collection of like-minded countries who together are acting in concert to prevent this from happening to their own nationals. Uh, So lesson learned for Beijing. Uh, Do you think Beijing actually thought then, uh, because you're right, uh, I mean, nobody's believing that uh, the Michaels just happened to be detained and charged and it's not related to Meng Wanzhou. But do you think that China not only underestimated the response of other countries, but underestimated the response of Canada and that they thought that this would be uh, something they could bargain with? Well, I, uh, they, I would have liked to have been a fly in the wall on that meeting in Beijing uh, for that decision because there surely must have been a faction, a political faction uh, within their Politburo that insisted we have to appear to be doing something. And the latest I've managed to hear through cracks in the wall is the argument within China, come on, it's just one person referring to Ms. Meng. And uh, that is an argument that says China should not be betting the farm in diplomatic relations and trade relations in world face uh, because of one individual. Uh, China knows better. Um, it's just that the political dynamics uh, are such that the family of Ms. Meng is deeply entrenched, tied up with politically and um, economically, uh, one or two key players in Politburo. And that's what's really driving this. It's not about state relations. It's about the personal dynamics, favors, family relations within the highest levels of China. That's what's promoting uh, this uh, uh, turn of events. Uh, And I'd like to see that uh, be resolved as well. Uh, we've heard from uh, Mr. Kovrig's wife uh, a, a little bit. Uh, she has spoken about the letters that she has received from him, uh, gotten a glimpse of what his life is like in that cell, what that routine is like. Uh, I know she's been asked in the past if she feels that Canada is doing everything they can to release her husband, to, to, to release both uh, Michaels. Uh, is it a case where there is go- uh, there are things going on behind closed doors or because it's before the courts is what we see in court What's happening? No, the the stuff in court is um, in the public eye, subject to public scrutiny. Uh, the real game here is behind the scenes, uh, and uh, Washington has its role to play. The pieces on the board are being moved as we speak. I suspect uh, that that presidential election will cause a, a change either way. Uh, and uh, at this juncture, I suspect Beijing may be looking for a face-saving way out as well. In court, in the next couple of weeks, will be some key arguments, but the real case, one way or the other, is going to be um, after Chinese New Year in 2021, uh, when the extradition case uh, comes forward. But between now and then, I have some hope 
I, I think the court will review the charter and abusive process arguments. Takes a while to come down to a decision. I suspect that, given today's polling numbers, if it's uh, President Biden and our and a new vice president who uh, went to school, high school in Canada, West Mount High from Montreal, uh, she may well have uh, the good heart, faith, and ear of our prime minister and will take the request from Canada uh, to perhaps reconsider the United States Justice Department pursuit of the Mizmung extradition case in Canada, given new information that may be coming to light. So um, I, the glass is half full for me. I'm optimistic, but I... I, I just can't imagine what uh, the families are going through for the two Michaels. Fortunately, they are the hallmark of the Canadian best values, the courage, the stamina, uh, the reports from our uh, diplomats uh, to the effect that they are in good health, um, physically and mentally. What does that tell you? Two years incarceration? Don't mess with Canadians. We're very good at what we do. I won't take what you give, and we're patient. Uh, so... Uh, things should work out in future. It's just a rough row for these families at the present time. They're caught. Are you surprised by how, uh, in, in such, what good shape they appear to be? I am, because I've dealt with individuals who, in cer- similar circumstances, uh, have not enjoyed the same uh, outcomes. Um, but that speaks to their toughness. They are not untrained individuals. Uh, they do have connections uh, with situations uh, in dealing with China, China political, economic, diplomatic, and uh, law enforcement, at least government law enforcement techniques. Uh, so uh, they're not like an ant on a leaf in a river. They are trained individuals with stamina and strength. Uh, and uh, th- those are skills uh, that literally will save their lives. And when you talk about new information or uh, things coming to light in the next few weeks, is there a way or is there a scenario where this ends? Because the whole point being, I know there are some people saying that Canada mm-hmm. should negotiate, uh, that that puts every other Canadian that yeah. travels in danger. Is there a way that this ends and, and, and saves that? Yeah, it's got to end well. And the good thing I draw from now is that the individuals are in good health, so <laughs> no shenanigans on the health side. Uh, it, it, I vehemently disagree, uh, disagree with the position, uh, just let Ms. Men go and we get our Canadians back, because you're absolutely right, it invites a repeat of hostage-taking by the Chinese state in future. No one is safe. That's not a policy we can accede to. Um, so... Uh, the new information is going to be based on changes in the political winds in this in Washington. Uh, there may be uh, some new information uh, percolating into the judicial uh, system here in Canada through the extradition matter. Uh, we're going to hear from witnesses in court as to what really happened on uh, Vancouver International Tarmac with Ms. Mung. Uh, and uh, the argument of the defense has traction. There's, uh, there's more than an air of reality to the abuse of process case, uh, particularly since uh, President Trump again has uh, managed to spout words that um, f- uh, fulfill the defense uh, strategy of saying Washington used Ms. Mung as a trade pawn in uh, U.S.-China negotiations. So uh, these, the, the situation's fluid, uh, and, and I'm, I'm avidly watching. 
Well, uh, just before the one o'clock news on the program today, I played for you uh, a story out of Global Toronto, and it has to do with the thin blue line patch. And it's a patch that a lot of officers are wearing on their uniforms. It's become a symbol of solidarity among police officers right across the country. But we have now learned that a memo from one of the largest police forces in Canada is advising officers that they are no longer permitted to wear that patch while on duty. Uh, Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Brian Sauvé, National Police Federation President. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Uh, Can you give us a bit of background for people that are not familiar with the Thin Blue Line, with this patch? What does it look like and how did this all come about? Um, so from our perspective, um, so it's a, the patch itself is about an inch by two inches long and it's got a Velcro backing. There's a subdued Canadian flag uh, and there's a blue line that runs horizontally across the center of the flag. Uh, and essentially it's, it's uh, a symbol from the law enforcement community and there's also one in the fire community and other communities in fire, it's red, of basically... Um, showing a shared lived experience, right? You know, I understand where you're coming from. I know uh, what you're doing. And, you know, this thin blue line shows that we've all made a choice in our career to run towards danger, to protect the public, and to maintain public order from chaos. That's all it is. Um, it's not a political statement at all. We're not an us versus them uh, at all. It's uh, simply that uh, expression of solidarity amongst the law enforcement community. And um, if you look at our morning ribbon, there is a thin blue line that runs around that, which remembers our fallen comrades. And a lot of people have associated this particular patch to memorialize and remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. And how long has the patch been worn? Oh, my. Um, the thin blue line actually started in the 1850s uh, for in the Crimean War. It was actually the thin red line for a Scottish regiment that defeated the uh, Rus- Russian insurgency. And then in the 1900s, um, it came up in the United States in the Los Angeles police and the New York police uh, about that thin r- blue line that police officers walk daily uh, to maintain order from chaos. In Canada, it's more recent, um, perhaps in the last 20 years or so uh, that it's really expressing solidarity amongst colleagues. And so what is your response then uh, when hearing about this memo sent out from the RCMP executive saying that this is not an approved symbol and is not to be worn on uniforms by officers on duty? Well, I think, you know, I was dismayed, uh, disappointed. And, uh, you know, one has to realize is that uh, the National Police Federation was certified in 2019. It's the first time in 147 years that the RCMP membership has a voice with management. Um, And we were a little disappointed that, A, the Corps Sergeant Major didn't reach out to us and possibly have some discussions around the use of this patch or alternate uh, logos that could be put on the uniform. I mean, we are in the middle of collective bargaining. So this could have been a discussion around the table at bargaining. It could have been an informal discussion between management and the new union. So I think we chalk that up a little bit to... uh, both parties learning their place in this new collective world. Uh, And secondly, you know, the membership have had a four and a half year ordeal right now to 
certify a bargaining agent and start negotiations for their contract. They've been without a raise for four years, and they're really waiting for something positive to come forward. And in this last year of difficulty, whether it be COVID, whether it be ongoing salary freezes due to negotiations, whether it be the movement of um, of uh, defund the police, morale has been impacted. So for management to make a unilateral decision to remove something from uh, the membership's uniform where they proudly display their solidarity um, was a bit of a kick in the teeth. So hence, we kind of took the bull by the horns and said, if you don't like the flag, uh, then we'll create our own logo and we'll distribute the logo to our membership uh, in support of them. Um, And that has created uh, some fruitful discussions, actually, with RCMP management. And 15 minutes ago, I got off the phone with the commissioner, and we're actually having really good discussions now about how we can meet in the middle and figure out um, what it's going to look like down the road. Uh, Because she values the membership's morale just as much as I do. uh, And, you know, how can we figure this one out? Uh, So are officers allowed to wear, say, a blue ribbon if they wanted to? Unfortunately, no. Uh, The memorial ribbon is uh, to be worn on the left breast of your uniform um, after the death of a colleague in the line of duty or duty related until the funeral has been completed. So that's a temporary ribbon. So this is one of the challenges um, of how do we find something that's acceptable to both management as well as the membership where they can express their shared um, their shared sacrifice to communities, their shared service to Canada, uh, as well as respect the ongoing conversations about modernization in the police and the public safety field. Uh, Have they clarified to you then the the reasoning for this? Is it that management feels if this was allowed, if this patch was allowed, it would open it up and officers could then wear any kind of patch that they would want on their uniforms? Uh, It wasn't that. It was expressed to me that a... um, There were some concerns by Heritage Canada about the emblem of the Canadian flag and that this particular patch was considered arguably, yes or no, defacing the flag. And therefore, as a federal government entity, the RCMP should not be endorsing that. So that's one side of the house. But then at the same side of the house in the United States, and let me be very, very clear, policing in the United States is not policing in Canada at all. Uh, There have been some groups, radical, that have capitalized on the image of the blue line in the ongoing difficult world of policing in the United States. Um, So there were some concerns from RCMP management that we may be uh, considered something similar if we endorsed that or allowed it to continue. Um, We disagree, right? We have to embrace that policing in Canada is completely different than policing in the United States uh, and that the the RCMP should be a leader in um, how we treat our employees and how we support them and their mental health and their morale and their deployments. Uh, it's a difficult world out there and we still have young Canadians who are choosing um, a life of service and a life of sacrifice to work in the RCMP in all sorts of environments across Canada and worldwide. So is do you think that, that those lines 
uh, or have been have been blurred a bit. And when you talk about policing in the United States, uh, certainly the deaths uh, of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, uh, the, the critics of this, some are saying that that it it kind of creates this us versus them mentality. It, has that kind of been brought into Canada or is that the argument being made here as well? I think some are trying to make that argument and some are missing the point. Um, and, you know, uh, all this is, is the policing community showing a shared statement of essentially, for lack of a better term, is I respect what you do for a living. I can see that you have chosen a life of service and uh, that might come at the ultimate sacrifice. So we're embracing that and we're supporting that amongst ourselves. It is absolutely not political uh it has nothing to do with us versus them um it's no different than um a rugby team having team jerseys and they have a c or an a for the captain or the assistant on the team Uh, so are you confident that there will be some kind of compromise it sounds like if you take the canadian flag out of it there might be some room there I think there's always room to discuss, um, and you know, uh, our the NPF's relationship with management of the RCMP, although it's in its infancy, in a formal way, um, has been good. We've had a number of successes. There are still a number to come that we're resolving informally. So. I had I would have hoped that we could have discussed this before it became public, um, but we will hopefully have some fruitful discussions in the coming week and and uh, figure out a way forward. And in the meantime, then, if an officer is seen wearing this while on duty, are there repercussions for that? I would hope not, um, but if there are, uh, they can always call me and we can uh, defend them through that process. All right, uh, Brian, we'll leave it there. appreciate uh, you making some time for us uh, on this Monday. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Enjoy the day. We have been uh, talking and listening to some of the comments uh, after it was revealed at uh, an online roast of the retiring Ralph Saltin. Liberal candidate Jane Thornthwaite uh, made some sexist comments about NDP candidate Bowen Ma. A lot of reaction to this uh, today. Uh, there was uh, an apology of sorts from Jane Thornthwaite, first on Twitter. She then spoke to Global News yesterday about this. Bowen Ma spoke earlier today. We played some of those comments from you. Many people wondering when Andrew Wilkinson will stand up and say something, address what is what has happened, what has come to light. He is one of the people that is also participating in that roast and can be heard laughing at some of those comments. So joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Martin Brown, who is a former chief of staff to BC Premier Gordon Campbell, also a top strategic advisor to many provincial party leaders. Martin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You wrote about this uh, in your column in the Georgia Strait as well. Uh, First, what's your response or what was your response when you first heard these comments made by Jane Thornthwaite? Well, I just had to shake my head. It was flabbergasting uh, to to watch uh, not only her comments and, and coming from a woman, especially. I mean, who uh, you would think that would be, you know, hypersensitive to the uh, very kinds of uh, offensive remarks that she made. And uh, and there was one other woman of the nine people on the screen, but you know, eight other liberals, senior liberals, uh, sitting there defying, including the leader of the Liberal Party, who was so dumbwitted he didn't even know that there was anything wrong with what uh, Jane Thornbeek was saying uh, about Bone Ma, uh, 
you know, not just a woman, a member of the Taiwanese Canadian community who Taiwanese Canadian community who who uh, has done an excellent job of representing her writing, uh, and and to sit there and laugh about that uh, is horrible, is bad. But then we are called out on it in public uh, on Twitter. To, to then have a, a you know, the kind of response that Jane Thornwaite originally had, which was which was kind of trying to brush the issue aside, and then she issued an unreserved apology, and and Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the party, you know, ordinarily you'd be expecting the leader of such a party to be demanding the candidate's resignation. She should go. There's no doubt about it. She should have to resign, and who should be driving that normally would be the leader and all of the other candidates. In, including and especially women liberal candidates, all of them are silent, right? And the reason is, is because it's the leader who was laughing, the leader who didn't see anything wrong. And then today, Jill, the leader is too busy or can't be bothered, whichever it is, to go out and make a public comment and face the music. Idiot. Uh, you know, I, that's the only word that comes to me because it not only is uh, doubly offensive, diminishes the uh, the affront to uh, to women and to uh, to seniors as well. I mean, Ralph Saltan, you know, uh, you know, was the subject of these barbs and the so-called roast, but. It's that typical awful ageism humor uh, that that uh, you know that pokes fun at, at quotes old guys. He's over eighty, you know, uh, kind of like you know he's the weird, lascivious old uh, person who can't resist the wiles and charms of a young woman. It's you know, a ridiculous kind of affront to him as well. And nobody in the Liberal Party has the guts to stand up and say she should go. And you should be bloody well out there today, Andrew Wilkinson, and apologizing and answering. Instead, they're going to lose another day of their campaign <laughs> politically. It's just asinine. Uh, and they're going to be facing that music in the debate tomorrow night. I just can't imagine who's advising that guy. And I think you've kind of answered this question, but I was going to put that to you. If you were advising him yesterday and today, what would your advice be? Well, the first thing, obviously, in any in anything where you've done wrong, if you know that you did wrong, is to apologize unreservedly to get out there in public as the leader and lead the way, not to come hours later in a news release, not to hide out in, in your in your office or wherever he was, let alone another day to go by. You would actually be advising that person. You should be out there first out. You should be demanding actually that person's uh, apology and resignation. He can't do that because he thought it was funny at the time. Uh, So at a minimum, he should be out there right away apologizing, answering to the media and answering directly to to Bowen Ma, who got offended, and to all women and all seniors and all people of color who have been offended by this. Uh, He didn't do any of that. And he still doesn't get it because fundamentally he thinks this is just a minor kerfuffle. It's going to blow over uh, and we'll be on to other things. Uh, Well, you know, that's just bad politics apart from being horribly morally wrong. Uh, what about how uh, the NDP have handled this in that I don't think it was uh, by chance that this was released. It was Mo Amir, who is a contributor here on CKNW. Uh, he says he was he was emailed this exchange. He put it on social media saying, I'm not going to comment on this, but I want to know what other people think. Uh, the NDP uh, took to Twitter yesterday, two news conferences today, one with Bowen Ma, one with the leader, John Horrigan. That gives them another day. To, as you said, it's going to become front and center probably in the debate how do you what do you think of their response 
Well, I mean, it was as partisan political as you would expect in the middle of a campaign. Uh, I, I do think it's more than a little uh, convenient, the timing of this release. I mean, this this incident happened some weeks ago, apparently. Uh, you know, this uh, Brady Bunch uh, uh, Zoom call that they had. Uh, so I don't know really when it came to the uh, to the uh, person who released its attention, you know, but it does look, it does look very much like it was designed to uh, throw the Liberals off their game with the debate coming. Who knows, you know, Jill, uh, with all the the uh, vote buying that Andrew Wilkinson's been doing with his, you know, free tax for this and free tax for that and endless spending for this and that, everything you can possibly dream, that might be cutting into the NDP's numbers. Uh, and so it wouldn't surprise me at all if this was a sign that the NDP were saying, well, let's arrest that. Let's nip that in the bud by, by releasing this video uh, and playing it up. None of which alters the fact that what was said in that video was wrong. Uh, so if it had been released as soon as whoever had it got it first, uh, maybe a week or two ago, uh, I could have understood that. But I'm not surprised that they'd withhold it to the campaign to, to uh, make Thornthwaite and, and uh, Wilkinson pay the, uh, the ultimate price. And they've compounded that price exponentially, uh, Wilkinson has, by his bungling of, uh, of how he's handled this in his seemingly unremorseful uh, response by not coming out publicly today and facing the music. Uh, when you say pay the ultimate price, too, is, is that the, I would imagine there are people sitting in war rooms right now in crisis rooms trying to figure out what they're going to do, because that is the big question. People will see this. People will make their own, uh, will draw their own conclusions as to how bad this was. But what matters is if people, what people do come Election Day. Well, that's right. And as we know, the Liberals are arguably trailing by about 18 points. And they're trailing by by uh, by over uh, 25 points among women. You know, so, you know, women, the, the NDP are ahead two to one over the Liberals with, with women voters. And, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's gone up dramatically as a result of this. So they must be just, uh, you know, pulling their hair out, the, the Liberal advisors thinking, what on earth would it take? I don't know if they gave good advice. Who knows? Maybe they did. And maybe Wilkinson just ignored it. But, uh, you know, uh, they're probably all still hoping this is a tempest in a teapot, a minor little uh, joke gone awry, and and that most people won't change their votes over it. They may not change their votes over it. Uh, And that's the problem for Wilkinson. He needs at least 18% of the electorate to flip their votes and to get back on his team. But instead, they're, they're looking at him and saying, you know, you're just, you're just, you don't get it. You're out of step with the times. You're offensive. Uh, and with all that we've uh, seen this past uh, summer, you know, uh, with, the, with the Black Lives Matter protests, with the Me Too movement for the last two years at least, uh, and, and you still don't get it? You know, that's that's really, I think, what uh, it does is it entrenches people's voting decisions even more. And it sure makes uh, any would-be liberals way less inclined to come out. I mean, are they going to feel their, you know, apathy probably already was going to be a problem for the parties with voter turnout. But this gives, you know, the NDP's voters new reason to get out there and vote or mail in their ballots. And it gives liberal uh, would-be voters reason to say, geez, I just don't care. You know, they're 20 points behind. It's not going to make a difference. Uh, and that's maybe what Wilkinson is hoping, but uh, that that uh, that a lot of voters will say, oh, a pox on all of you. But uh, it's a really, really bad strategy if that's his plan.
What about also when you talk about getting ahead of, of this and, and making a stance on this? Because it's not, this is the latest that we've been shown and that we're talking about today. But if you go back to Lori Throness and Andrew Wilkinson has been asked several times on the campaign trail, do you support uh, not only Lori Throness, but another candidate as well who voted against a rainbow uh, crosswalk? Uh, do you support these candidates that have controversial views? And his response, I think four times has been, I have gay members of my family, I have lesbian members of my family, and I love them, which is great, but it doesn't answer the question. No, and that's, you know, again, that's indicative of exactly the Liberal Party that the NDP say it is, right? Exactly the Liberal Party that many people have turned away from and said, grow up, get with the times, and bloody well, find your moral compass, right? They haven't done that. And Wilkinson is the leader. And the best he can do is to say he's got members of his family who he loves uh, that are in the, uh, you know, they're gay. Um, but but to not come out and, and actually take a side and to, to stand up for the LGBTQ community, to not stand up to, to a candidate that is defying his own party's policy, his own caucus policy about where he was advertising in a magazine uh, that, that was an affront to, to that community uh, and saying he's going to continue to advertise there. Uh, you know, time and time again, he's he's gutless. He's afraid to stand up because he doesn't want to lose votes, obviously, to the far right social conservatives that he fears might split a few votes off. I can tell you it's done exponentially more harm uh, to, to the so-called liberal, small L liberal brand to say, no, this isn't really something we find important. This isn't really something we're prepared to stand up for and stick our political necks out on uh, because it's the right thing to do because of politics. We're just not ready to do that. We're not willing to do that if it might offend a few far-right people uh, on the fringes that actually hold Lori Thronis's view of the world. You know, that's the liberal view of the world that I think people are scared of and that are, and that are looking at it and saying, you don't get it. Uh, so this is, it all plays into a narrative, Jill, that, uh, that the liberals haven't matured. They don't get it. They haven't changed. They're not with the times. They're fundamentally ignorant of some of the most important social issues of our times. And they're prepared to put, you know, petty partisan politics ahead of, like, their view of it, ahead of what's right, um, where they think that regionally it might make a a difference to one or two seats. It's just, it's it's hard to fathom, you know, from somebody who, who, uh, and I know Andrew Wilkinson very well. I worked with him for, you know, uh, 13 years, more or less, uh, in the Liberal Party, and I know he's a brilliant guy, he's a Rhodes Scholar, he's a lawyer, doctor, all that stuff, but he's no politician. I said that from the outset. He's no leader. Uh, he was a great bureaucrat. He was a great follower uh, in terms of taking direction from, from political leaders. But as a leader, he's failed abominably. He did an opposition, and he has on this campaign. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs> 